0: Hello everyone, it's November 15th, 2022. This week a Cygnus cargo vehicle hit a slight snag on its way to station. At least one of its solar panels had a snag. But all turned out well. I guess there's a reason they put two deployable solar panels on it in case one of them doesn't. So let's go ahead and deploy the show and lift off. Hey, and we to the tower. Welcome to episode 385 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So lofted, it made its splashdown successfully. I mean, like it worked. Uh, is that surprising? I don't know, but like I was kind of amazed that it worked so well. Although, apparently, it came back a little bit later than expected.
1: Well, hey, I mean, it, mm. if that means a slower re entry, great.
0: <laughs> Probably Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. But... Like, that was my take. Like, I think that just means it worked even better than they expected.
2: I'm seeing a, a New York Times picture referring to it as an inflatable flying saucer.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm down. <laughs> These pictures are wonderful.
0: There is a video showing during descent that apparently a little. Like, a little module is actually ejected during descent, and that's apparently some kind of a data recorder, but I guess it's not a recorder for the entire descent of uh, the heat shield because it, you know, departs. So I don't know what that does, and I haven't heard any reference to it, but that was in the animation that I saw that was provided, I think, by NASA.
2: And maybe just the earlier parts of the entry. Yeah. Looks like a little yellow water balloon that gets tossed out.
1: Yeah, an ejectable data recorder releases, and it looks like a little infant booger sucker. The data recorder is is ejected so late in the re-entry sequence that I think it's it's more of, like, in case the parachutes don't work. And, like... Yeah. I don't know what parachute uh, technology they're using, but, like, parachutes always fail when they're not tested to hell and back, so...
2: (laughs) In that video... From Redwire's page, it sounds like this engineer is referring to them wanting to save a lot of the critical mission data. And so, like you're saying, that you get to sidestep it hitting the the water the wrong Mm. way and (laughs) sinking or something bad happening. Yeah,
1: sinking is kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it's the black box for Lofted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense because I was thinking maybe they weren't too confident about, you know, the high temperature part of the reentry. Um, which maybe they're not but they do need that data so if the whole thing burns up well then it doesn't matter because it was a failure i guess i don't know Uh, maybe that doesn't make sense but it it makes sense that they would want to preserve the information that they got provided that the entry was successful except for maybe the parachute doesn't work because like you said ben it very well might not and it could sink so
1: yeah and they're they're testing the heat shield they're not testing the ocean recovery
0: systems like right hmm. pretty cool and uh Pretty much every headline you read says that this is what will, you know, allow large things to land on Mars and possibly Titan, some other planet too. I don't remember. Was it Venus? I don't remember. But I keep hearing references to the same three planetary bodies.
2: I say there's not many atmospheres with a solid surface underneath yeah. them. That. <laughs> yeah.
0: Cygnus winged. So what does that mean, Ben? Cygnus wings? You mean like oh. you mean like it has one wing?
1: Yeah, like like if uh if a bird it like I think it I think it's coming from like skeet shooting or something, which now it's making me feel not great about the title. But like yeah, if you if you wing a bird you you just hit the wing rather than actually killing it. Okay. So I'm pretty sure people are going to be familiar with uh, what's going on with Cygnus. So unfortunately, we don't have that much additional information uh, than what I think most people are going to know. But uh, to kind of like add some, some meat, uh, like some actual content, I want to talk about the payload. Um, obviously, these um, cargo flights are just Absolutely cram packed with so many different things that on the missions where they do publish a manifest, it's you're just like waiting through it looking for something interesting because there's a lot of like, yeah, of course they have that. Um, but like one of the interesting things, uh, within a, of course they have that category is food. There's a lot of freeze dried food that goes up there, but they tend to send up, you know, little treats that don't have long shelf lives. Um, you know, a lot of oranges and onions and garlic and things like that. Um on this uh on this flight though, they also had some pumpkin spice cappuccino. And I'm pretty sure this is going to be for the Italian uh quote-unquote espresso machine. So I I'm, I'm guessing they're just like coffee pods or something, but like yes, uh pumpkin spice has made it to space um <laughs> you you are not safe uh you better just learn sad, to hey. enjoy it because you know it it can be pretty tasty uh also on board is uh red Wire's biofabrication facility um kind of interesting that we just talked about red wire a second ago um but the biofabrication Biofabrication Facility is a human tissue 3D printer. We've been experimenting with tissue printing here on Earth. Uh, I guess it's time to try it in zero G. Um, There are some CubeSats on board, um, including the first satellites built by both Uganda and Zimbabwe. Uh, I didn't uh, go track down exactly what they are, but yeah, two CubeSats.
2: I noticed a picture of that. It's pretty cool. they got a uh, Japanese 2U. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the Uganda and Zimbabwe ones that are one U each, and they got them like with their uh, flags next to them. And uh, they're part of, I think, a larger uh, constellation or something. Yeah, let me get this right here. It's the uh, Japanese led Joint Global Multinational Birds Program, which comes and turns out to be an acronym Birds, all caps, I guess. Well, that can't be right. They're just just calling it all birds for short. Uh, But basically, yeah, it's an interdisciplinary satellite project for non spacefaring nations. So I guess that's just a way to get some actual hardware up there. When you, uh, you know, a lot of these countries have space programs. Uh, uh, Some of them don't, but not many people actually build stuff and put it into space. And so this is just an opportunity, I guess, to do that. So they're uh, optical imagers for Earth observation.
1: So then uh, there's also... um uh hardware for the next Irosa installation this is specifically the power augmentation modification kit which is uh a bracket to attach uh Irosa onto um Cygnus is also flying with a ton of fuel for reboosts um they're actually with what what did they say within less than a kilogram of their max fuel load um so w- within a kilogram Closer than a kilogram, um, and then notably, not on board are any post-departure experiments. So no uh, Sapphire one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Cygnus leaves in, I think three months, it's just going to reenter and
0: burn up. Do you think when it says one kilogram of the max fuel load that they're referring to that's as much as it can store or as, or are they talking more about a mass limit? I guess it's just as much as it can store. I'm assuming, but.
1: Yeah. So, so they specifically said, uh, fuel payload. I don't know if, if volumetrically, I'm assuming volumetrically they could put more than a kilogram in because they need to have like header space in there maybe. But yeah, it's it's the design limit is what they're approaching there.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to look up what the typical propellant mass is for Cygnus that might be.
1: Yeah, I don't think that they increase their their maximum propellant capacity, but um Northrop Grumman did increase the maximum payload capacity, I think, by like fourteen kilograms. And it's not a change, it's just they have enough data that they were confident uh to shrink their margins. So they're like, okay, yeah, go ahead and Cram okay, a little more in.
2: If this is helpful, at least for the previous NG-17 mission, I'm reading that the propellant mass was 800 kilograms.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: So we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, a fraction of a percent <laughs> of their max, <laughs> that one kilogram.
1: Okay. So the thing that I think everybody really wanted to know more about, certainly I did, was the undeployed solar panel. Um, Cygnus uses ultraflex panels. They're the the round fan-shaped panels um lucy's uh, undeployed solar array is also an ultraflex though it is a bigger version um and we don't we really don't know much um there is a statement from Cyrus Dalla, uh, the vice president and general manager of tactical space systems at Northrop Grumman. Interesting that this is coming from a tactical guy, uh, yeah. but <laughs> OK, whatever. The statement is uh, during a rocket stage separation event, debris from an Antares acoustic blanket became lodged in one of the Cygnus solar array mechanisms, preventing it from opening. OK, <laughs> doesn't say a lot, but interesting that they were able to you know, narrow it down to a bit of acoustic blanket. On the way up, they knew that this uh, solar ray had not um, come all the way open, and they were considering uh, alternatives for doing the actual uh, capture and berthing. The thing that they were worried about was even if the solar panel doesn't pop open, right, that'd kind of be the worst case scenario. You have the whole thing spring open when you don't expect and either it becomes super floppy or, you know, potentially it releases FOD or potentially changes the orientation of the vehicle. Um, that that could be bad. But, you know, even less than the worst case scenario, just if this solar array is a little jiggly when you're trying to uh, grapple it or install it um, in the berthing port, it could potentially add you know, an oscillation uh to the vehicle that could um potentially make things worse for uh for actually birthing it to ISS. So they were thinking about, okay, you know, worst case scenario, we re-enter without ever docking with ISS. I think that's to be avoided uh if at all possible. They were also um planning on being able to um not arrive at station for very or until much later so they could have time to Um, to diagnose the issue. They also considered arriving at station and loitering like within, uh, within sight, probably outside of the keep out sphere, which I think is like uh, eight kilometers or something, but you know, close enough that it'd be really easy to finish the approach, but far enough away that they're probably not going to hurt ISS while they're doing this analysis in the end. I don't think they really delayed the arrival at all. I think they uh, got close enough, probably, took some photos, and I wouldn't be surprised if one of those photos is how they identified uh, the acoustic blanket. Um, I don't think that the cameras are good enough. I don't know. They they have cameras on at least one of the arrays. Maybe they have two cameras, and they could, they could diagnose it. But yeah, um, I don't think they actually delayed anything, and they arrived at station and did the birthing with absolutely nothing interesting happening.
2: Can I ask a, a fundamental question about what an acoustic blanket is? Like, I understand or well, I guess specifically... Is that just another term for those kind of uh, tiley things that you sometimes see on the inside? Okay.
1: Yeah, and sometimes they'll be smaller. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes they'll be smaller sheets. Sometimes they'll be bigger sheets. But yeah, it's just... You know, it's basically just like stuffing or uh, um, acoustic foam that you would put, you know, in the corner of a room where you're doing an audio recording or something.
2: I see. Collectively, they act as a blanket. It's not like Mm -hmm. they are physically have the form of a blanket that you're...
1: I think it really depends on the vehicle. But I think most of the time, yeah, it's probably going to be hard foam. Um, But I wouldn't be shocked if one or multiple... Um, launch providers used used actual something that would look like a blanket, even if it's the size of a you know a sheet of paper or a handkerchief or something.
2: Thank but, you. It's it's very yeah. fundamental things like that that mm-hmm. still <laughs> trip me up. <laughs>
1: and this photo is really good. I'll, I'll include this photo in the show notes. But what I'm looking for is the pop top. Um, so Antares fairings have this cool feature where they can disconnect the top of the fairing and access the payload. After integration, and I think this is an older Antares fairing. The photo that shows the blankets really well, I believe is an older fairing. Uh, I see orbital a t k branding on the vehicle, but yeah, so the idea is they have a clean room that they can roll up to the pad. Interesting that we're talking about clean you know late stage uh clean rooms again um, <laughs> but they uh they can lean. They can tilt the vehicle back down from vertical, roll up this clean room, and open uh, the pop-top on the top of the fairing. And then they have um, platform structure. They can roll inside the fairing so that they can crawl inside the vehicle and you know do late loading or whatever they have to do. Um, probably key to some of the ice cream that went up this time. They probably brought that in pretty late. So it's interesting to to talk about the pop top. Um, and I wonder if the insulation coming loose or the uh, the uh, acoustic blanket coming loose might have something to do with these late load operations. Maybe there was mishandling, that seems unlikely, but maybe they're handling um directives. Uh, are a little more lax than they should be. Maybe, you know, you're opening and closing this and you're disturbing some, some taped joints or something like, I I have no idea, but it's interesting that they have this capability and uh, they traced, you know, this, this back to a bit of uh, a bit of blanket um, coming loose. So this was um, the penultimate launch for Antares 230 plus. I mentioned this in the short and sweet last week, um, but I, Don't think I talked about what the next vehicle is. So the next vehicle is Antares 330, 230 plus to 330. Um, And Antares 330 is definitely something to keep an eye on. It is uh, designed and built in collaboration with Firefly. Maybe we've talked about this on the show before, but I don't really remember talking about it. Um, This will be the first Antares that is completely made in the U.S., or at least that uh, doesn't rely on Russian or Ukrainian parts. Um, for these last couple of Antares 230 plus missions, they've actually had, um, Ukrainian experts, um, weighing in and like helping to make sure that everything's going right because the engines, uh, are, are made in Ukraine. Which, I mean, like, which is crazy. Like, <laughs> uh, can you imagine having your country being under siege and you know, there's so many Ukrainian people going to work and like going to work. And you happen to be consulting with NASA on or consulting with Northrop Grumman on how to fly your rockets like that's tough. But uh, Antares 330 is going to use uh, Firefly's Miranda engine, seven of them, actually. Um, and it will also uh, be using Firefly composites uh, for the tanks and some of the uh some of the structural elements i i don't believe that antares 330 uses uh, tanks as structure i mean it's it's all additive so you know whatever but that's that's pretty cool um especially because like firefly is still designing uh their beta vehicle which I'm guessing is in the antares kind of class as a as a medium lift vehicle so it's cool to see them getting to spread their technology around that's how you build a uh like a resilient space company i think with all that said, Antares 330 is not going to be ready until 2024, and we only have one more 230 plus uh, left in the, in the books. So um, there are actually three Cygnus flights that are currently manifested on Falcon 9s. Um, so we'll get to see kind of a cool crossover where Falcon 9 is, is going to be flying three Cygnuses uh, before uh, Antares 330 is ready to do the job.
0: So let's do three short and sweet's this week. Dennis, what is the first?
2: First up, X-37B returns to Earth after record-breaking 900 plus days in orbit. The U.S. Space Force's uncrewed reusable space plane, the X 37B Orbital Test Vehicle 6, or OTV 6, completed its first mission with a ring like service module attached to the rear of the spacecraft when it touched down at the Kennedy Space Center Shuttle Landing Facility. The service module had successfully separated from the OTV before landing, which both removed the service module from orbit and allowed the space plane to use its aerodynamic surfaces on the center. The OTV hosted a number of experiments that included testing the effects of the space environment on materials and long duration space exposure on seats. The mission broke the X-37B's previous record of 780 days on orbit by spending 908 days in space.
0: Then next up, China changes plans for Long March 9. China's Long March 9, a rocket conceived for putting humans on the moon, is now undergoing a huge redesign in order to achieve partial reusability. The original concept was for a single-engine core stage surrounded by four side boosters. The redesign will now feature grid fins on the first stage and no side boosters. The YF-130, the powerful kerosene-fueled core stage engine capable of producing 1 million pounds of thrust may now be facing an uncertain future as this single engine would make throttling for first stage landings very difficult. According to Chinese officials, the design process remains fluid with several technical challenges still ahead.
1: And then last up, Artemis 1 getting stormy. Previously on Artemis 1 launch delays, launch targets had been set for the 14th, 16th, and 19th of November. And now the thrilling conclusion, Uh, Tropical Storm Nicole ruled out the 14th as a viable option. The storm swept through the Cape area on the 9th and 10th, though forecast wind speeds were lower than SLS's design limits. As such, the team decided to keep Artemis 1 on the pad rather than risking a rollback to the VAB. The 16th and 19th opportunities are still viable with the storm having rolled up the US East Coast and the possibility of launching on November 25th still exists even with the heightened air traffic. Okay. Very much a hurry oh. up and wait situation.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What else is there to say?
1: Nothing. No, I just at this point I've committed to doing updates on every single launch attempt, so Yeah.
2: <laughs> and there are plenty
0: all right. So let's move on to this weekend's space flight history. Uh, we have just two winners, both with the bonus points. We have Uncle Willie and the Greek. Uh, so I guess this was kind of a hard clue, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah, I almost want to say it was more uh, a not the best designed clue. So I take responsibility for, uh, you know, a shout out to everybody who guessed. Um, there were some good ones, but... Given that the clue was, actually, I thought it'd be right about this high at Miko, could have fit literally any kind of successful launch during this range, I suppose, <laughs> so long as it had a main engine. But um, I was look- looking for the one that I think stood out more than anything else, and it was the, uh, on November 17th, 1967, and it was when Surveyor did a brief flight from the lunar surface. So this was the first proper takeoff from uh, another world, essentially. And and I also want to point out that uh in Uncle Uncle Willie's uh response, <laughs> I, I like that he he, he ref he had correctly referenced that this was the uh, the Steve Hawley quote. But I also like that I guess this was also in the time range, you could have used reused a derived quote for the uh November twenty first, nineteen sixty four inch flight of Mercury Redstone one. And so I think uh was that you, Ben, that covered that one as a twissif back in the day? I mean probably.
1: It sounds yeah, I like think, a meme. I
2: think is, and yeah, and you were inspired to make the comedic spaceflight failures document. Yeah, um, as a result, because <laughs> I definitely remember that one. So yeah, so so Surveyor Six, a brief flight from lunar surface. This is really cool, and there's some really good pictures too. Uh, so to give a background, right, this is the 60s. This is uh, before humans had laid on the moon, but we were throwing a lot of metal towards the moon to figure out what. It's really like what the material is there, how flat these surfaces are, what time of lunar day do we want to land, etc. And so there were the rangers that were just heaving things and slamming them into the moon. There were the lunar orbiters that were clearly orbiting the moon. And then there were the surveyors, which did the soft landings. These, I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. They got the big tripod and then a bunch of uh, stuff stacked on top of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the Apollo missions uh, landed next to them, or at least one did. I can't remember the details behind that, but these are the kind of classics. And so this is specifically Surveyor 6. Uh, It was designated Surveyor F before launch, and so uh, you might see it if you do some Googling under that moniker. And this was to give you a sense um, of how the program was going. There were three uh, successful landings prior and two crashes. Uh, prior to this in the Surveyor program. And I, I had mentioned the first proper uh, flight uh, launch from an extraterrestrial body, uh, because Surveyor 3 technically bounced off the surface of the moon a few times. <laughs> when it was trying to do its landing, It was uh, one of the thrusters was malfunctioning and just kept firing, apparently. And so rather than actually just touch down safely, kind of lift it off technically uncontrolled a couple of times. And so I don't want to talk any more about that in, that in case that becomes a future twisted, but I thought that was kind of a funny uh, asterisk asterisk to have to put next to a, uh, a space flight first. But uh, I guess that wouldn't be the only time, right? Like, isn't technically the first picture or image taken from Mars that kind of, you know, a few lines of a Russian camera that was knocked over, <laughs> the lander was tipped on a side and it only transmitted for seconds or whatever before it. It went toast. I don't know. There's some kind of weird technicality about that, too. But in any event, um, these surveyors, they're about a ton. And it's pretty straightforward as far as talking about what instrumentation is on board. There were three things. There was a TV camera. There was an alpha scattering uh, experiment. And then there were a couple magnets that they put on one of the footpads. And I'll talk about all three because they're pretty cool um, and pretty neat uh, what they uh, were doing even in this kind of early – era of spaceflight, I guess, the the golden age. And so the way the mission worked is that it launched on uh, November 7th. So this is uh, before uh, the clue on the 17th, so 10 days, uh, on an Atlas Centaur from uh, launch complex 36B down in uh, the Cape. And uh, this, right, this was Atlas Centaur. The Centaur was the first, right, Hydrolox upper stage. It was newish at this point. And so some of the earlier centaur, or sorry, some of the earlier surveyors, they uh, flew on a direct descent trajectory. And once they left uh, the launch pad, they just fired the uh, centaur's upper stage and to take it straight to the moon. And in all cases, they were doing the uh, direct descents onto the lunar surface. And so they would come in screaming hot and then have this uh, 356 kilogram Morton Thiokol solid rocket motor to basically break it when it was doing its, uh, its its descent to the lunar surface. And what was cool about this one was that restarting an engine <laughs> on orbit is – this is something we do now, uh, kind of – I don't want to say necessarily routinely, but fairly routinely, I feel. Uh, but this was uh, kind of cutting edge at that time. And so this was one, though, where they were able to have – at this point, they had kind of tested the Centaur's engine and its restartability – and they were successful at it on earlier missions. And so this was going to be one of these surveyors that would instead go into an Earth parking orbit and then have the Centaur relight, boost this engine a second time, and send it to the moon. After launch, three days later, it lands at Sinus uh, Medii, which stands for Central Bay. And it's really right at uh, zero degrees latitude and zero degrees longitude, like it's off by a half a degree almost in one and one and a half degrees in the other, uh, not even. So it's essentially like the equivalent of null Island, which is a name for the point on earth. That's at zero zero. And so it's basically right smack dab in the heart of the moon. So uh, fairly easy to see uh, this, this mare, right? A bay um, when you, uh, or see really, um, when you uh, look at the, the moon at night and, um, both crashed surveyors, I mentioned, two of them didn't make it, were both targeting around this, this central area uh, at very uh, low latitudes and low longitude. And so this was kind of third times a charm for Surveyor 6. Now those three science instruments, right? A camera's a camera. Uh, it was prolific and doing a great job. It took 29,952 images of the surface during the first two weeks of operation. So this was before lunar night came, and kind of things went. Well, it was the beginning of the end at that point. But um, some sources had a little bit more than 30,000, but generally that ballpark is is kind of what you get from any documentation on it. And it was a more advanced camera than the uh, previous surveyors had, uh, including, uh, among other things, it had polarization filters, which would be very important for understanding what the regolith is like around your lander. Now, the alpha scattering experiment, I wasn't originally going to say much about But it turns out, I think it's actually really, really cool. So this thing is basically a box, okay? And it starts off stowed within the spacecraft, the surveyor lander itself, and then gets kind of lowered on a nylon cord to the surface Um, after it it took five hours of calibration data in the stowed position. And, And the way it works is it gets lowered to the surface, and then this... Uh, A curium-242 source, which has a half-life of only 160 days, is blasting the surface of the moon with alpha particles. And then, based on how many get scattered back up, there was a sensor in this box that would be deployed, and it would measure the scattered uh, protons or other particles coming back. And from there, be able to tell you an idea of the composition that was in there and so i didn't realize we were winching things down to the surface already uh in 1967 which is pretty pretty sweet and then um the uh third instrument uh i think is really cool too and has again uh some really great pictures that will be in the show notes this was essentially a pair of magnets um that were placed on one of the the legs so there's right there's three legs on these uh Uh, surveyors. And I shouldn't say a pair of magnets, a pair of bar magnets, but one of them isn't magnetized. (laughs) And so there'd be a comparison going on there between the two. And so uh, they were identical in size. They're six inches by 1.3 inches, sorry, six centimeters by 1.3 centimeters by 0.3 centimeters. And one of them was a proper bar magnet. And the other one was a uh, unmagnetized uh, Inconel bar. And uh, the earlier surveyors uh, four and five also flew with these assemblies. And uh, four, I believe, was one of the ones that crashed, but five was able to collect some data with these. But in any event, is on one of the legs, and the idea is that you know, as it lands, um, depending on how much iron content is in the mineral is in the regolith, it'll attract that to the magnetized magnet bar magnet, and not to the other one. And then at one point, to get an idea of just how much uh, how strong that uh, magnetization is, uh, basically how much stuff there is, is to dr- try to basically blow off the uh, particles, the the, sha- the regolith shavings, I guess, that are attached to the to the magnet, try to blow it off with an RCS thruster. And when you That's cool. do that, yeah, see how much actually comes off. And so they did it, you know, as a control before the, the launch on the ground, and then they actually did it uh, in space on the lunar surface. And they actually have before and after pictures of that too, in one of the documents that we 'll share um it's kind of tough to see <laughs> uh, with this this document, but it's it's in there and so yeah so so it's doing great science and and I thought it was really cool uh to be able to view everything that 's going on between these magnets as well as this uh, uh alpha scattering experiment was that there were mirrors on the legs that allowed the camera to view the mirror to reflect over you know i guess more horizontally towards your uh, uh whichever yeah uh, the either the magnets or the uh, the box that contained the alpha scattering experiment and so great science they basically i mean i don't want to go too much into it but they confirmed that the mare were fairly uniform meat uh in composition that they had that they were they had a uh, iron content in there, um as well as you know all the other kind of stuff that you tend to find in there, like I said, lunar night was coming, and so it was going to hibernate at that point. But before then it did what is this twist if it took flight from the lunar surface uh There are three vernier engines on the uh spacecraft, and they are all off to the side of one of the legs, kind of where the the leg meets the the main Body of the spacecraft, because of that, to keep symmetry, they're all offset in the same direction. So it kind of has like that shuriken look to it, where the kind of blades are all coming in a spiral kind of pa- uh, pattern. And so uh, this was uh, they use monomethylhydrazine for the fuel, and then mix oxides of nitrogen uh, or mon ten for the oxidizer. And so that's ninety percent nitrogen tetroxide and ten percent nitric acid, where right you could dial that up or down depending on what you were trying to get out of your fuel and uh, oxidizer. And so uh, each of these, right, being vernier engines, right, that means they have that kind of fine tuning and sensitivity, just like, you know, vernier calipers. And so they could throttle between 130 to 460 newtons each. And uh, they would differentially throttle them to, to do the pitch and yaw. To do the roll, uh, only one of them, the the engine on uh, leg number one, uh, was gimballed. And so they would do roll uh, using that by firing that off. So then on November 17th, the actual of event happens, and the three main engines all fire for two and a half seconds. And so they dialed it to 667 newtons of thrust, again, given that variability of what they could throttle with the verniers. And it basically ascended about three ish meters or 10 feet above the surface and landed two and a half meters or eight feet west of its launch point, which you could also think of as the original landing point. And what's cool is if you consider uh, how, I guess, I don't want to say the diameter, but the footprint of this uh, spacecraft, it's, you know, about eight feet (laughs) or two and a half meters. So it didn't actually displace an entire body length, like part of, you know, its bus landed on top of uh, where one of the legs was previously uh, had landed. And so it only kind of, it did displace itself, but it wasn't as though it kind of went zooting off way out in the distance, and landed somewhere else, all that different. And so that was really cool for a couple of different things that, one, it allowed the cameras to study the original footprints, which can tell you some things about the properties of the material based on how the, the landing uh, footpads uh, penetrated it. And it also gives you uh, stereoscopic views when you take pictures of the same thing, but now displaced by a, a smaller angle from, your, uh, from the camera's point of view. It also had uh, consequences for the other two experiments. Uh, the magnet assembly uh, did not make contact with the reg- regolith uh, on the first landing, like it wasn't supposed to, but on the second one, uh, it wound up getting the lower seven-eighths of the bar magnets, I guess, covered in regolith, <laughs> and so that, that had happened. And then, unfortunately, the alpha scattering experiment, um, the sensor head of it had come down on its side after the hop, and so it wound up basically out of, uh, not aimed at where the, uh, the alpha particles coming from the curium source would reflect back towards it. And so it was aimed in the wrong direction. So all I could do was collect background measurements of just, I guess, the cosmic rays that were striking, uh, the surface around there. And so, yeah, so operations ended, uh, after that, uh, on the same day and, uh, uh, on the 26th. So a little over a week later, they placed it in hibernation mode. And on December 14th, they decided to try to reestablish contact. Uh, and they were able to get communications from the spacecraft for a little bit. I'm talking, I think, just a couple hours. But it was clear that the spacecraft was not in good shape. They couldn't read, like, for example, how much charge was still in the battery. And so they couldn't really try to restart the science, and the communications dropped shortly afterwards. And so that was the end of Surveyor 6, although, again, transmitting, you know, 30,000 images back to Earth, uh, doing a little hop, uh, and learning a lot about the surface uh, material through the the magnet and the alpha scattering experiment. And so really good stuff coming from it, and it's still parked there uh, at the Lunar Knoll Island. And so, hopefully, someday when we're heading back to the moon, it's about—it's not close to the South Pole, obviously—but hopefully, we'll get to see it and put it in a lunar museum someday. So that's this week in spaceflight history.
0: Cool. All right. Well, thanks for that Twisif. uh Yeah, a slightly cryptic clue, but you know, two people got it, so I think that's still a total success and uh, yeah, an awesome event. So Ben, next week you have that week in spaceflight history, and the date range is the twenty-second through the twenty-ninth of November. And you have a clue for us?
1: Yep. Next week in twenty twelve. The clue is jumping off a not-yet-dead rock.
0: Jumping off a not-yet-dead rock. Good clue.
1: Yeah, good luck. Like,
0: (laughs) I don't expect a lot of winners here.
1: But, you know... (laughs) Sometimes you have to go with your first instinct because you have ADHD.
0: Yeah, so if you think you uh, know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck.
1: Yeah, good luck everybody. Not going to get it, but <laughs> appreciate everybody trying. <laughs>
0: All right, so let's do the upcoming space flight events. We got 5 of those. What's the first one, Ben? All
1: right, first up, it's Artemis 1 again. Uh, so right again. now they're yep. Yeah. <laughs> right now they're sitting at 90% uh, weather as of Sunday the thirteenth, so ho- hopefully this will actually happen. Um, but right now their current T zero. Actually, I've got a I've got a window here. I'm assuming their T zero is uh, going to be at the beginning of this window. But uh, we're looking at Wednesday November sixteenth at o six o four hours UTC to o eight o four hours UTC. So good 2 hour window probably targeting the beginning uh of that window but yeah may- maybe it'll actually happen this week
0: yeah yeah the, you know i got like a, I guess a good feeling about this week like i'm going to call it and say this week it actually will launch um cool all right yeah i'm going to all right i said it <laughs> we'll see all right um and then on that same day on the 16th we have the launch of uh lean 1 high resolution 03d-08 uh, 51 to 54. So this is a constellation, a small constellation of satellites. Uh, and these are five new Earth observation satellites. So that is launching aboard a Series 1, which is a launch vehicle from a company called um, Galactic Energy, which is a Chinese private launch company. I've never heard of them before, but uh, yep, Galactic Energy. And that'll be launching from uh, Jiuchuan, China. From an unknown pad, uh, the liftoff window is 0611 UTC through 0658 UTC.
2: Up next, we've got something that is, I think, very exciting. It's uh, the first of a pair of EVAs uh, where the Russians will use the uh, European robotic arm or ERA to actually go and reach across the way and grab the radiator from Rosvet and bring it over and install it onto Nauka because Rosvet and Nauka are both pointed in the downward Nader direction. And so this is EVA, or in Russian, VKD number 55. And 56 uh, will be next week, and we'll talk about it then. 56 is going to actually grab the arm. This one is going to be more about preparing it, so presumably unlatching things over on the Rosvet side, as well as installing some uh, supports and uh, handles and things on the Nauka side for the cosmonauts to park themselves during it. And so NASA TV will have coverage on Thursday, November 17th at 9 a.m. Eastern. And it's uh, the spacewalk itself is scheduled to begin at 9.20 uh, Eastern Standard Time, and will last around seven hours, as spacewalks often do.
1: After that, we have a Starlink. This is Group 2-4. Oh boy, I did I did the David thing and pronounced the four. That's launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that'll be launching Thursday, November 17th, at 0322 hours UTC out of Vandenberg.
0: Um, and then after that, we have another SpaceX launch. We have uh, the CRS-2 or SpaceX-26 mission. So this is launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5, and it's launching from Kennedy Space Center, launch complex 39A, and the launch time for that is 2115 UTC. And I don't have, uh, there's no listing here, at least, of what exactly is on board, except for, um, general supplies, payloads, things like that.
1: I got the sneaking suspicion that the other Irosa is on there, but...
0: Might be, yeah. Alright, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Alright, and with that, let's deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: Record live on Sunday is at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly and a special shout out to the greek mike bt deathkin chubby zach colin adam space emory leon running man and uncle willie for joining us live in today's chat thank
1: you if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbital support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources
0: for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbital mechanicscom and be sure to check out our store mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can
2: talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit where are Podcasts on both you can talk directly to us by
0: emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we'll see you on next week on orbit until then later
2: goodbye everybody see you <laughs>